What's up, everyone? Welcome to another edition of the African Football Roundup. Usually, we drop these on Mondays, and then we drop the Five Aside podcast on Friday. Um, this week, however, has been very, very busy. I had been in Tunis and Tunisia shooting something related to the African Cup of Nations. I didn't have a chance to watch any of the Champions League matches or any of really African footballers playing in Europe over the weekend. And as a result, it would feel fraudulent to put out an episode on Monday. Um, I had just gotten back yesterday, uh, which is Wednesday, um, as I'm recording this. And so I haven't really had the time to put in the, the research necessary to continue with the Five Aside series for Friday. And so we're just going to skip uh, one Friday of the Five Aside. This is going to be like a, a roundup episode, but we're just going to talk about a general topic um, related to African football. And then we're going to do a roundup on Monday and back to the Five Aside podcast next week with uh, another African head of state and how they use football to their advantage. This time is going to be a uh, fellow from West Africa, Francophone West Africa. So stay tuned for that. This week, we're going to talk about something that went viral on social media uh, about last week. Uh, For those that haven't seen it, John McKellobe went on Rio Ferdinand's podcast and he was talking about what ended up being called Black Tax on Twitter. Um, But he was basically talking about the exploitation of certain families on the African continent when it comes to their relatives who are professional footballers. Um, And he, he, well, for those of you that haven't heard it, I'm going to put an excerpt here now and then we'll pick it up right after. When you come from Africa, and this is something I don't think we speak a lot about, when you make money, mm. it's not your money. You have all these relatives, cousins, whatever you call it. Who you didn't know. Yeah. Mm. You know, and your sisters, they go off and they get married to some guy, you know, who just wants to get married to, in, to John Obi Mikhail's family because mm. then my life is sorted. Mm. And then you start looking at this guy. Before you know it, you're looking at them, where, where, where is it? You're on less than them. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> they keep having so many kids and so many kids. And you're looking at, okay, you having this much kids. Who's going to look after them? Mm. It's you. The, it's culture, the culture. Like they expected to, you they're, to do that. For them, you owe them that. So you sometimes you have to be strong and say, you know what, guys, enough is enough. I don't care. They give you this thing whereby if you don't do it, we're going to go to the press. Oh, wow. Man, what? Did you have that conversation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? After all, all I've done for you guys. But this happens a lot. To all the players, a lot of the players. In, your in Africa, I'm telling you, not everybody comes out and speak about it because we're thinking, how are we going to talk about this? So as soon as I saw this clip come out with John Obi Mikel talking about this, I immediately knew that this was something that I wanted to talk about because it had been on my mind for quite some time. I think African footballers, especially star African footballers, playing in Europe are some of the most misunderstood people on the continent. I'm sorry, some of the most misunderstood people in the world, really. Um, A lot of them have, you know, uh, negative reputations. Many European football supporters or journalists don't really understand uh, some of their reactions, some of the ways they comport or behave. Um, And as a result, I think they're unfairly portrayed and so what I wanted to do was take a look at, you know, three cases of three footballers, uh, John Obi Mikel, Emmanuel Adebayor, and we're actually going to finish this podcast with an interview that I conducted with Didier Drogba a few weeks ago um, for a book called Afrosport, which you can put a pre-order for right now. 
Um, and we also talk about the specific discussion, which is why when John Obi Mikhail spoke about it, I thought, oh, there's a light bulb that went in my head. And I said, you know what? This could be a good opportunity to discuss all of this. And so my thesis is that these African superstars are misportrayed because the general wider European public, one, doesn't know or understand where they are, where they come from. I mean that from like a geographic uh, perspective, from a socioeconomic perspective as well. Two, the European public or, or the supporters or the wider public don't know or understand the challenges that these footballers face. And as a result, three, they don't know or understand the reactions of these footballers when they actually have said reactions. And we'll start with John Obi Mikel. John Obi Mikel is a good place to start because he's not the most outrageous figure in European football. You know, he's usually seen as someone that's calm, cool, collected. He's widely liked by the Chelsea base. But look at some of the things that he's had to face in his life. So he talked about being exploited by his family. And you have to understand that here we're usually seeing one side of the equation. We're not seeing the other side of the equation. Um, but he talks about that. People don't know that John Obi Mikel's father was kidnapped. I mean, this made headlines, so, so they might have heard of it. But he was kidnapped by five people dressed in military uniforms um, for, for several days. And John Obi Mikel was playing football at the time uh, for Chelsea. And his father said that after he was kidnapped, he was like begging for mercy, but they were beating him up mercilessly. Uh, and he doesn't know how he survived, really. And eventually the Nigerian military intervened and saved his father. Again, this is something that you can't really even perceive happening to, you know, like a French player or a British player. Um, and so there, there, that's one thing. John Obi Mikel was part of the 2016 Nigerian Olympic team. Uh, <laughs> and this Olympic team, there was trouble in the preparation in that they didn't really receive funds necessary to travel to Brazil in time during the preparation. John Obi Mikel paid out of his pocket so that the team could fly over and participate in that first match on time. Again, not really a responsibility that, you know, British or French superstars uh, have to really take on uh, in their life. Me personally, one of the more profound things that I've ever heard in my life from a footballer was when I interviewed Sheikh Kouyaté in 2017. At the time, he was playing for West Ham United. And um, we're, we're talking about, you know, his career path and how he made it and, and really how he made the move to Europe. And he was telling me that at 15, 16 years old, he met an agent and the agent took him around France and he was doing different trials around France. And um, the idea was that one of the clubs that he was trialing at would pick him up and he would eventually move on and, and be a, a professional footballer that way. Sheikh Kouyati said that basically, like, at the airport, you know, like, a lot of people were there to see him off. He went. He does seven or eight trials all around France, north, south, east, west. Nobody wants him. And at the time, he was trialing as, like, an attacking midfielder, number 10. And he eventually has ended up being, you know, a central midfielder or a central defender at times for Senegal. And... Um, after that first round of trials, he told me that he was rejected. He flew back to Senegal. You know, and imagine this, you're 16, you're vulnerable. You had just 
been abroad for the very first time, you know, it was cold, uh, you didn't know anybody, you got rejected seven or eight different times. And he goes home and he's probably looking for that comfort and that warmth. And he said that he looked at his family and he could see that they were disappointed to see him, you know, because it's not that they were mean, you know, it's not that they didn't want to see him. It's just that, oh, he failed, you know. Uh, we, we kind of needed that. We kind of needed for him to make it. And he's just looking for human comfort and human warmth, and they're disappointed to see him. Again, it's not a criticism of his family, not at all. But just think about the conditions that these people live in. You know, think about the conditions that, you know, that are imposed on them and, and, and the dreams, you know, of making it out and, and being able to provide for your family. Think about the juxtaposition of finally coming back home after all that rejection, looking for that warmth, being with your family, but at the same time feeling that that distance because, ah, he didn't make it. And eventually he goes on and the next year he gets a trial in Belgium and, and he ends up being successful and he goes on to have a great career. But that, that moment is very, very profound for me. Now let's talk about Emmanuel Adebayor. Emmanuel Adebayor, like El Haji Diouf, is for me uh, one of the more controversial um, football superstars, African football superstars that have played in Europe. Um, and again, let's go back to the, those three points, you know, about people not knowing or understanding where these players come from, not knowing or understanding the challenges they face, and thus not knowing or understanding their behavior or their reactions. Emmanuel Adebayor is born in a small village in Togo. Sorry, he's raised in a small village in Togo near the Ghanaian border. His mom sells uh, meat. Uh, his dad just exchanges money on the border. You know, if you have Ghanaian currency, he'll exchange it, you know, to, and he'll make, you know, a few cents on the dollar. He grew up, he couldn't walk until the age of six. His family thought something was wrong with him. They were taking him, they were trying everything, you know, like, you know, the traditional healers, medicine. They take him to the church eventually at, when he's six years old and they pray for him all week. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, he's in the church and he finally gets up and he starts walking and he's scared. Think about that story. That's the craziest. That's one of the, think about how he must feel like, oh yeah, like miracles do happen in my life, you know? And, and this comes from an interview that, you know, he, I'm going to put in the description, uh, he gave to SoFoot in which he, he seems to exaggerate a bit in a few of his answers, but I don't doubt that it's a true story. I've Heard it from more than one person. So this happens to Emmanuel Adebayor. Grow, he can finally walk, but he's, he describes you know, his childhood as, okay, I'm playing football outside of our hut. We have a hole in the roof of our hut. His job is, you know, when it starts raining, to grab a bucket and go put it under that hole so that they can collect rainwater. And he describes it as like, you know, like everybody describes their childhood as happy and, you know, they have that nostalgia for those moments. And he describes it as kind of happy, ha having happy moments but being in a really sad context, you know. He didn't even have a toilet in this hut that they were living in. They would have to go to the beach to, you know, to go do a number two. Um, again, think about these socioeconomic conditions that he grew up in. And so finally, he he's playing, you know, with the youth national teams in Togo. He's the best player in Togo. Uh, and he manages to get, you know, a training, uh, or sorry, a trial at Mets Training Center. Another thing that African superstars talk about, especially 
ones that go to Europe at a young age. Adebayo goes at 15. Kuyate went at 16. They both said the cold. And this is something that we might laugh at. Like, ah, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, it's cold in France. It's cold in England. Like, this is a real problem for them. <laughs> they cannot function, literally. They, these are, you know, people that have never seen snow before. People maybe have never experienced temperatures under 10 degrees. And they go there, maybe the Adebayo says he went with three t-shirts and, you know, like, a pair of shorts and, you know, a pair of pants and, and some flip-flops to, to France for the first time. And all of a sudden, he's in Metz. Northeast France is freezing. He's never, like, that That impacted his trial. It did. So anyways, um, he's talk about talks about, like, not being able to perform in those conditions, you know, like, not feeling his lips for the first time. And eventually, um, you know, the good people at Mets help him and, and he and he pulls through and, and yeah. And, and, and finally, like the, the really great thing about this interview with Adebayo is he talks about having an understanding man manager as a coach. Because he talks about Arsene Wenger and he says, I've, I've never really heard anybody badmouth Arsene Wenger. Not, you know, like Samir Nasri, not Emmanuel Adebayo. They all respect him as a coach. And, and Adebayo says that. He says, you know, he's a good coach and I respect him, but we weren't best friends. He's not happy about the way he left Arsenal because he felt like Robin Van Persie and him didn't get along and Van Persie sort of pushed him out and Wenger sided with Van Persie. But he had nothing bad to say about Wenger. But he talks about the importance of having a man-manager as a coach and you know having Harry Redknapp or having um, Jose Mourinho as coaches. And Harry Redknapp saying, you know, uh, there being a game on Saturday and Harry Redknapp going to Adebayor on a Monday or Tuesday and saying, how you feeling? You okay? Yeah. Oh, you have a little bit of soreness in your right leg. You know what? Don't worry about it. Take two days off. And then when the day before the game on Friday, he'll come up to him and be like, look, you're the greatest player ever. You know, you're, you're, you're the best striker in the Premier League. I know you're going to score two goals. And, and he'd go out and he'd be so in, instilled with confidence that he'd go out and he'd perform for Harry Redknapp on, on Saturdays. And the next week, Redknapp would say, you know, why don't you go to Paris? Go take the week off. Come back before the game. Before the game, he'd hype him up again. He'd perform again. And so, you know, Adebayor, these are people, you know, like we're talking about, like, again, we don't want to generalize, but Adebayor, like, they're having family problems. You know, Obi Mikhail Adebayor having family problems feel rejected in a way by, by the people that they, can, they can't really, you know, count on. Football clubs, we know, like, you know, they're like ever-changing organisms. There's people in and out of the doors. And to have a coach that can come to you and say, you know, I need you. I trust you. You're the best. That, like, really speaks to players like Adebayor, players like, I don't know, like an Al-Hajjouf. Those are the kinds of, you're not coddling the player, but they need that from you at that moment. I think that's one thing that we didn't understand. And, and when... You know, these stories emerge about family problems, tabloids, especially in the UK, love to run with it. But again, always try and get the player's perspective because these are very, very difficult socioeconomic conditions that they're coming from. And when they're coming from these socioeconomic conditions, things that might seem outlandish to you are not necessarily outlandish. You've just never been in that position before. So yeah, I just wanted to have that conversation and I'll, I'll leave you with the excerpt from the interview that I did with Didier Drogba uh, two, three weeks ago where I actually specifically asked him about Adebayor and because I know he knows him. And I know that somebody like Didier Drogba has had to... I'm not saying his family, you know, tried to exploit him or anything like that. But I understand that, like, 
I asked him specifically about African superstar footballers and them having to deal with much more responsibility than your average British or French superstar footballer. You know, uh, Pierre Emerick Obama Yank, the president, Ali Bongo, calls him on speed dial and says, hey, we need you, you know, you, oh, you took your international retirement? Actually, we need you. Can you please come back and, and play for us this week? You know, presidents of countries are calling them. Think about the responsibility they have to take on. Think about Johnny B. McHale's responsibility of having to pay for, uh, you know, the, the squad to travel to Brazil. Otherwise, Nigeria is probably not going to have the performances that they had in Rio 2016 where they win a bronze medal. So, so these players, if you can put them in the right conditions, if you can make, make them feel the right way, you're going to get the maximum out of them. And I think that they can perform better than your average athlete because they, they know how to deal with more bullcrap. So that's just something I wanted to talk about. I wanted to get off my chest, and I'll leave you with the excerpt from Didier Drogba. I've experienced that. Like, like <laughs> I'm still experiencing it. <laughs> so this is this is unfortunately part of our culture. You know, uh, these days when you succeed, when you become famous, when you're making a lot of money. Uh, People tend to believe that it's easy, like oh, you got you you have money, so you have to help me. Uh, but they don't know all the hard work uh, Manuel de Bayer would be doing. It, they don't know if the guy slept well. They don't know if the guy was injured but still pushed himself. They don't know uh, maybe that the manager doesn't like him but he's pushing, he's trying his best to 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 play. They don't know all that. All they see is dollars and like, oh, why is my turn? One kid, one day, I went to back to Ivory Coast, uh, like eight months after signing for Chelsea. And it was the big... The big this is a normal kid that, on the street or, or somebody what? that's related to you? Or? Normal kid on the street. Is this a normal street? kid on normal the street? Normal kid on the street. <laughs> and and the, the kid, I was jumping in my car and then I, and I closed the door and I put the window down. He's like, he's like, ah... The big Drogba Didier, come on, from all this money Chelsea gave you, 24 million pounds, where is mine? We get nothing. I'm like, first of all... You thought the transfer fee was the way to see it. Yeah, I said, man, transfer fee is one thing, salary is another thing. And then, my friend, you want to get to this level, you have to work hard, you know? And, And people think it's easy to say that, you know, from my position. But before being in that position, I, I, I earned the right to be in, in that position. I worked hard, you know, and this is what, this is the difference between um, uh, players in Europe. And let's talk socially about the, 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 the cultural differences uh, in Europe. The families, your nuclear family, so mom, dad, brothers, sisters, uncle, uh, aunties, separated. Sometimes even parents, Easter only. Even parents, you know, in Africa. Even Adebayo is my brother. If tomorrow I have to help him, I would, I would go and help him. You know what I mean? It's, it's the families. The uncles, the cousins, the sisters, the 
plus one, plus two, plus 10. So, because we used to live in a, as a community. So when my mom and dad were working, it would be maybe my auntie who came and took care of me or, or I don't know, one of the sisters who came and, and you know, changed my, my, my diapers or, you know, all these kind of things. So when you succeed, people see like, oh, I had an auntie who was, who was saying, hey, don't forget about me, huh? I, I change your diapers. You know, I'm the one who was cleaning your, 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 your sorry, no, you know the words. I was cleaning, you know, everything. So don't like, don't forget about me. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Got so it, got it. that's 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 our reality. You you know exactly what happened to him with his family at the time, uh, Manuel de Bayor. Uh, it's sad, but uh, that's that's our reality, and and we have to deal with it. And nobody. <laughs> Is there for teaching us how to react, how to handle that. So that's the excerpt from my interview with Didi Droba. If you liked it, please consider uh, putting in a pre-order for a purchase of the Afrosport book. Uh, it's coming out in January, I believe, but you can pre-order it right now. I'll leave a link in the description below. And uh, yeah, that's going to be it for this week. As I said, um, we're not having a five-a-side podcast. We're going to pick up on Monday with an African football roundup recapping this upcoming weekend's action and then next week we're going to talk about that uh african head of state from from francophone west africa who had a club team that won three champions league titles in the 1970s thanks for listening please subscribe if you haven't yet please give thumbs ups rate if you're listening on audio platforms and share with a friend Um, thanks for listening one last time and we'll speak soon